Hello and welcome to Stuff We Say Flashback Episode 7. I'm Jamie and it's a little known fact, or maybe a very well known fact at this point, that one of my favorite video game series of all time is the East series. And some of the best entries in that series were brought stateside by Xseed. But of course, companies aren't people. And companies are nothing without the talented folks who work at them. As such, I got to talk with game localizer and translator Sarlene, an absolutely legendary person within game localization. And she is incredible, and I really hope y'all enjoyed this interview, even if it's a couple of years old at this point. Welcome everyone back to another episode of the Stuff We Say podcast. I've taken kind of a departure last time with my boyfriend and I just talking about Smash Bros. We're back to doing game developer and uh, inter interviews and interviews with those in the game industry. And today we actually have someone who's worked on some of my favorite games, Sarlene. You've you've worked uh, at Xseed, you've worked on Freedom Planet, you've, you've had a hand a lot of the East games, which I'm sure as longtime viewers know are some of my just... I'm I'm a big East nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, East is a very... I love East. What can I say? It was a pleasure to get to work on those games for so long at Xseed. And no, I think that's really awesome as well because... Xseed is a company that I know a lot of folks, especially those who are familiar with RPGs and whatnot, uh, they, they hear about and whatnot, but they don't really uh, know a bit, they don't really know about what the actual process of getting uh, those games from Japan to them to play and whatnot is. So, can you, do you want to kind of give everyone kind of a basic overview of what uh, what you do it or what you do did you're you're still at Xseed actually yes, yes. Uh, do you want to do you want to give people an overview of what you do at Xseed? Okay, sure. Um, at Xseed, my official title is base, basically um localization developer, but what this ends up meaning is we, you know, when we are translating a title for like PC. We have to do a lot of the programming ourselves sometimes. So I will get the text out of the game. I will make sure that it is in a format that everybody can use. And then once the translated text is done, I will have to get that back into the game. Although because a lot of the games that I've worked on were older titles or things for um, different systems perhaps even I have to do a lot of extra work to really make sure that they are viable for the PC audience like making sure they work in widescreen making sure they have all the input options that people are expecting it can be pretty difficult work sometimes but it's quite rewarding I think uh, absolutely you know especially with tiles such as corpse party and whatnot yes uh so how exactly did you get started doing this? Well, interestingly enough, I was originally just a fan like anyone else. And in my spare time, I would work on games like these as a hobby. Like, I would do fan translation. So I would be translating these games without any of their 
sparse code, anything like that, just reverse engineering them, basically. And so that's basically how I got my start, because that is what got me noticed and got me into the industry. No, that, that's really awesome to hear as well, um, no, because there's so many great fan translation projects out there. Uh, I know the, the big one everyone thinks of is Mother 3, but there's also likes of, say, East 5, uh, Super Nintendo version, whatnot. What were some of the fan translations that you first worked on? Well, I never really released many of my translations, but I got my start when I was just a little kid, basically, and... I saw these people working on games like Seiken Densetsu, and I was like, hmm, I want to do that. So I started looking at lists of untranslated SNES games and things like that, and just toying around with them for the longest time. So when it comes to the earliest things I was working on, I was probably poking at any random Japanese SNES game I could. But... When it comes to work that people would actually know, most people who know of my fan translation work have played Ragnarok Battle Offline, which was one of my earliest releases. I'm not very, very proud of that one. No? <laughs> no, it is, you know, it's it's rough because it's old. <laughs> and I, I guess kind of... Um... When when was that one first released? Uh, well, not the game itself, but your translation of it. I think that would have been hmm, about two thousand four, two thousand five, maybe. So, goodness, almost fifteen years ago. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I know. Like, I don't know. It, it's been weird. It's like, you know, thinking about how the Dreamcast is turning twenty this year and whatnot. But that that's you know, a discussion for another time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, I guess before, I guess before Exceed though, you, I guess you got your start in mobile, yes? No, um, but it was translation of like Japanese indie games, which is why they're, they called themselves Rock and Android because it was like a, they felt it was a fancy name. It has nothing to do with Android OS. Um, but essentially how I ended up working at Rock and Android is, I had fan translated this Japanese indie game called Suguri, right? And many people will recognize that title's name because she is featured in the game 100% Orange Juice, which is quite popular now. Um, I played that one. It's a good. <laughs> yes, it definitely is. So I had fan translated this title, and it turned out that Rock and Android had the official license to bring it to the U.S., so they ended up seeing my translation and they were impressed. So they contacted me and made it official. So what's really interesting uh, about translations like this is that, you know, what a lot of people I don't think realize is that it takes more than just being able to have a grasp over both the, the original language and... Uh, the language you're translating to, but also kind of a nuance and whatnot. Like, I know a lot of jokes, for example, that make sense in one language not, might not necessarily make sense in another. What sort of challenges did you kind of notice like that uh, in translations? Well, in general, nuance is quite a problem because there are a lot of expressions 
things that turn up a lot in Japanese that just don't translate well to English, like the infamous, it can't be helped. And you have to figure out how to convey that kind of feeling without actually saying these awkward phrases literally. So often this not only involves rewriting jokes and everything, but there are a lot of different ways you can approach this. One of the ways I like to approach things is I will pretend that the text was English originally and has been translated to Japanese, and I try to figure out what it might have said in the first place. I think I've heard this called reverse translation. Interesting. So kind of like, if so what, what would you say is one of the best examples of that reverse translation uh, process? Well, you might see um, when you're translating a game from Japanese, you might see some examples where a character's personality comes across fairly colorful. Like, they might have a very strong personality, but at the same time, it doesn't really feel the same in English. So you might look at the text and see, okay, this is a very bubbly character. What might she have said? And as a result of that, you would see a line about, I don't know, how happy she is to meet someone, and you would translate it instead as something like, I am absolutely pleased to meet you, you know, instead of just pleasure to see you or similar. Because it's like, hey, maybe it said something like this, you know? It's... It's definitely difficult sometimes to carry over the personalities of characters and get the point across. That was a big struggle for me early on when I was first learning Japanese. And I guess because uh, you're actually trilingual now, yes? Yes, although I haven't used Korean in quite a long time, so it's pretty rusty. Uh, how did you uh, go about actually, uh, I guess, d deciding to, to learn multiple languages and whatnot and apply that? Uh, to gaming? Well, it's more like the gaming came first, really, because I was, you know, back then I was playing all kinds of Japanese video games, just trying them out and seeing what it was like. And I ended up finding a lot of series and unique titles that I really enjoyed. So essentially, I just kept playing them. And over time, I realized that I understood more and more of them. And when it comes to Korean, that was because I was such a fan of Ragnarok Online, which is a Korean game. And obviously a lot of the newest content for that game was released in Korea first. So that was a big drive for me to go that route with Korean as well. Eventually, when I realized that I understood quite a lot of Japanese, I started furthering my studies more properly. And then, so when did you make the jump uh, to Xseed? Um, essentially, in 2011, like it was near the end of the year. Well, let me, let me go back a bit. In mid-2011, I was talking to a friend of mine, Andrew 
Andrew Dice, who worked for a competing localization outfit, um, about various things that I had been going through at, at Rock and Android. And he ended up telling me that he knew the people at Exceed and felt like they had a need for some of my skills on games by Falcon that I had never played at the time. I love them now, but at the time I was like, okay, I've heard of this. And I told him, well, if that's a thing that you think would be good for me, then sure. And so he contacted them and near the end of the year, Exceed got in contact with me and it did not take us very long to work out a contract and get things going. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> no, that sounds really awesome. Like, so, so it was actually a really smooth process. Holy crap. Yes. Like, I don't know, like person, I always, like you always look at a company like Exceed or whatnot and it's almost like, you know, how, how do you get on the inside? <laughs> <laughs> So, so what were some of the, the early titles you worked on for, for Exceed, you know, around uh, probably that 2011-2012 period? Well, the very first title that I worked on was East, the Oath in Falgana. And it wasn't long after that I began working on East Origin because it was in the exact same engine. So a lot of my work, I was able to just play and copy right over. And that was really convenient. And... So as a result, East ended up being my introduction to Exceed. <laughs> were, were there now? I know because I know they they both use the same engine, and whatnot. But I guess on a technical level, is there much different at all between uh, East Origin and Falgana? Well, yes and no. See, um, Oath and Falgana was sort of a transitional game for Falcom. They were still using DirectX 8, and they were making the move to DirectX 9. And they had, of course, also noticed that like monitors and stuff were getting bigger on average. So with Origin, they dropped support for the DirectX 8 engine, and they increased the overall resolution of the game. And while this didn't affect things too much on a coding perspective, I had to watch out for it sometimes and when i was writing the widescreen code i had to do things just a little bit differently and i guess what what would you say is the hardest thing about really getting some of these older pc titles to to look as best they can on a modern on a modern computer well it's a big part of the challenge is that you might want to make the graphics outright HD in this day and age because people look at these pixelated old graphics and they don't always look very good. Sometimes they have that retro feeling, but sometimes they just haven't aged as well when it comes to resolution. So sometimes there can be an issue with getting those graphics into the game because they had always expected it to be this size and now it's that size. So you can end up having to tweak all kinds of numbers along the way. And one of the trickiest things is when I was working on Trails in the Sky, the game has its own memory management system 
and I had to modify parts of this sometimes to make more room for HD graphics because there simply wasn't enough assigned room for the new graphics. And what, were any of these particularly painful to work on? Corpse Party. Corpse Party? Was that one PC-98 originally? Uh, the original Corpse Party was originally for PC-98, but they had made a remake called New Chapter, which was for Japanese cell phones. And eventually they decided to port this new chapter over to PC. It was a complete remake of the game. And they called it Corpse Party Blood Covered. Now, the thing is, when they were making Corpse Party Blood Covered, they used a very obscure um, programming language called Hot Soup Processor, or HSP for short. And this is a weird name. It really is. <laughs> and HSP essentially, it was being taught in some schools because it was a free programming language and was considered fairly easy to use. However, on a technical level, HSP is kind of a bit bumpy to use, let's say. And so when I was working on the PC version of Corpse Party, I did not want to work on the hot, hot soup processor version of the code. So I simply said, okay, I will work on this, but we are basically remaking the game in C++. And that's what we did. Incredible. So essentially what you had to do is you had to take this remake of a game and essentially remake it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that is essentially the case. Um, and so is there's... Oh, go on. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, but, you know, after that initial... Was the actual process of redoing it all in C++ fairly painless, though? No. no. It was extremely painful. And, like, it took us, I think, almost a year more than we estimated originally. Because... You know, the game's code made sense in HSP, but a lot of these conventions didn't really apply so much when we were trying to make the code more like we would need for the Steam version of the game, for example. And so when the game was being ported between programming languages, a lot of the code was not just translated 1-1, but more remade to achieve the same purpose. That's, oh gosh, that sounds painful. <laughs> yes, yes. And so all while you're doing this, you also got involved with Freedom Plan as well, though. That's right. So, so how exactly did, did that happen? Well, you see, when I was working for Rockin' Android, which overlaps somewhat with my early exceed years when I was still a contractor, um, we were working on these games, the Gundamonium Collection, which includes, you know, the games Gundamonium Recollection, um, Gun Deadline, and Hitogata Hapa. And during that time, when we got around to making the Steam version of those games, I had noticed in the reviews of the earlier PC version and the PS3 version that we had put out that the most bad Badly reviewed part of the games was often the music. So I decided, hey, guys, we've got some extra money for this, don't we? So why don't we make a new soundtrack for these games? 
And so I also happened to know a musician who I felt would be excited to do this kind of thing. His name is Bill Shalito. He is better known as DM Ashra. And so Rock and Android went for it. They hired him to do the arranged soundtracks, but over time we realized we weren't going to meet the date that was required without um, hiring another musician. And Bill, he suggested a person I had never quite heard of. Her name was Layla Wilson. Hey. <laughs> and so Layla worked on Hitagata Hapa while Bill worked on the rest of the arranged soundtracks. And she would later go on to also arrange Bunny Must Die for Rock and Android. So I produced these soundtracks. And during that time, I became good friends with Layla. And when Freedom Planet was having some difficulties at points, she decided to introduce me to Stephen Diderro, who is obviously the creator of the game. And he brought me onto the Freedom Planet team. So it was all just kind of... Would you say it's very much what people say about the game industry, where once you get into one section of it, everything just seems really small and interconnected? I would definitely say that. You will come across the same people a lot. People are moving from one company to another rather frequently. And as a result, it makes the entire game industry world feel small because you will meet a co-worker one day and then a few years later they're working at Sony and suddenly you have a connection at Sony and it's interesting it's a web it's a web but like and I what would you say though that the game industry is more spread out than it used to be though because I know uh like for example I'm in the Pacific Northwest and uh people you know used to say oh everything's in Seattle but or you know in film everything you know is, is in California or whatever, but would you say that the game industry itself has become more spread out even though it's uh, so interconnected? I would say that overall, it's always been pretty spread out in that regard. But with the rise of indie game developers, there are definitely some small studios like everywhere. You can find them in Denmark, you can find them in North Dakota probably. And that is definitely a change, but I believe that the centers of game development are basically the same kind of places they used to be. Seattle, Los Angeles, New York City, and of course, Japan. Yeah, and of course, Japan. Though <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I know, I, I hear people saying not as much as it used to be, but I, I don't really know about that. You know, I'm still seeing tons and tons of stuff coming out of Japan. Yeah, Japan is still making a lot of games, but the game industry dynamic has changed a lot with the rise of things like Steam. And Japan has begun to accept Steam over the recent years as well. So even when a Japanese game comes out, there's more Western standard applied to it than there used to be, I think. Would you say that uh, more Japanese developers are having to, to consider the effects of Western influence than before? I would definitely say that um, the PC market has grown very large, whereas when I first started on this kind of work, the market for PC games in Japan was mostly limited to independent developers like, you know, Falcom was 
somewhat independent at the time and had their own PC publishing arm at one point. But there were a lot of Dojin titles as well. And there weren't really a lot of AAA Japanese titles on PC. They That was barely a thing because in Japan, PCs were mostly being used for work purposes and the hardware was not very powerful. So I guess going... What what would you say, so what was has been the most recent game that you've worked on and I ask because even though uh, everyone if they want to they can look you up and you actually have a credits page on uh, Moby Games along with several other websites so that those actually aren't complete and then I also know that just for reasons uh even the games that you aren't directly involved on Xseed you're actually credited on that is correct but the most recent game I've actually worked on is Corpse Party Sweet Sachiko's Hysteric Birthday Bash, which is a mouthful. Yes, <laughs> it rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> that game is a visual novel that is in the Corpse Party universe. It is more of a comedy game than a horror game, and honestly, I find it to be hilarious. Um, that one was a port from PSP. I noticed that as well, you know, there's a lot of uh, titles that, that Xseed's done lately that have, or not just lately, but over the past decade or so that have been PSP ports, like, uh, I know, like, East Chronicles and Falgana, uh, and I know, I, I know, along with this one, there was another Corpse Party PSP game that y'all did. Book of Shadows. That's the one. Yeah. Um, well, you know, as... Japanese developers have been developing more and more titles for a PC themselves. There has been less of a need to just translate these games and program them ourselves because um, the programming is more often handled by the developer when the developer is actually available. But my particular job has mostly been related to when the developer is not available. But now that we have more Japanese games coming to PC natively. We are instead looking more at porting the games that aren't on PC to begin with. And as a result, I have had to take up porting. <laughs> and it's been exciting, but rough. What would you say is probably the weirdest port you've ever had to work on? Like, uh, as, far as, as far as porting from one platform to another goes? <sighs> when it comes to that, I would still say Corpse Party, the first one. But... Uh, for me, porting games from another system is a fairly new thing. Um, while I can't say that there is a weirdest one, um, one of the most interesting things that I had to do was when I was working on Trails in the Sky SC, second chapter, um, because, you see, it had a PC version already, but there was a PSP version of the game that had gotten released, and it had numerous extra features, including two more playable characters, one of whom wasn't playable even for a moment in the original P PC game. And as a result, back then, I often found myself making sort of a chimera of the two versions just like I had to do with some previous titles like East Chronicles. So with actually, that's interesting you say about East Chronicles. What what exactly had to go into uh, to the East Chronicles port? Well, see, with East 1 and 2, there had been a lot of different PC versions of the game before. Like, there had been um, East Eternal, there had been East Complete, and then there had been East Chronicles. 
which was basically just a very simple port of the PSP game. And one of the main complaints about the PSP game is that the view is kind of zoomed in a little. It's just a smaller section of the game view than you would have gotten with the older PC versions of the game. And it was lacking in PC options. Like, it didn't have any mouse support. There were very few resolution options, not much customization that you could really do to the engine. So I was given the code for you know, the previous versions of the game and Chronicles. And since Chronicles had a lot of extra features like the a new arranged soundtrack, some redone artwork, etc., I felt like, hey, maybe I can make an ideal version of the game that combines all of these things. And while I did manage to pull it off, I feel like those were famous last words because that was a rough project. What were you saying was probably like the, the, I guess, the not only the most difficult part of that, but the most unexpectedly difficult part of that? Well, you see, since the original versions of East 1 and 2 were made in like the 90s, the very early 2000s maybe, and were made originally to work for very old operating systems, like even to an extent Windows 3, um, the game operated with a 256-color palette internally. So when I had to make new versions of like the PSP artwork and stuff to fill more of the game area, I had no idea that I was going to be working under strict palette limitations and having to create new palette management just to display these pictures. Like Falcom's code was extremely solid and extremely well coded for the time, but with you know modern displays and trying to add new art, it was unexpectedly difficult. You said mentioned that like these are based off uh, ports of the games dating all the way back to the early '90s, even uh, on the PSP. Uh, well, the PSP version was essentially the culmination of all of these versions, because there had been Eternal, there had been Complete, and then Chronicles on PSP was based on all of these versions, but had its own changes it was modified more so basically they just kept adding and adding to this engine over many years but it did come out and i i gotta say it's a great port of the games it's really a really great solid port <laughs> thank you yes but but also i'm i'm an east nerd so you know <laughs> <laughs> can't blame you <laughs> also talking about east i know a big one that people were excited about was uh the arc of nepishtim coming to pc uh how, how how exactly was that was that porting like well arc of nepishtim actually uses the same overall engine as origin and oath and felgana but this was the oldest version of the engine like we had never seen it in this older form and when working on it, sometimes things just felt a little different, a little off. So I had to adapt to that. And the way it originally came about is, you know, Felgana and Origin, they've both been very popular titles, naturally. And Ark of the Pishtim, it had a PS2 version by Konami 
that had added several new features, but was somewhat controversial because it also made all of the sprites into 3D models. Um, I, a small question as well before you go on. Uh, what? Just making sure this is the same version that also I know people are very ang angry about that PS2 version because it replaced the anime cutscenes with uh, 3D cutscenes. That is absolutely true. Although some people don't realize there is a cheat code in it that version of the game that you can use to see the anime cutscenes. But as you're saying, sorry, just wanted to make sure because I have both, but I forgot which one was which. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, it was that version, yes. But we couldn't use anything from the PS2 version. We couldn't use Konami's script. We couldn't bring over Konami's other features. Some people were actually attached to these things. So instead, we had to figure out how we could make our, our version stand out. So we, instead, we added a couple of more minor convenience features from Oath and Felgana and East Origin, like being able to warp to other destinations you can choose from a map with an item, whereas the game originally contained a ton of backtracking. Oh, oh absolutely. Which, as said, that's... It's a small quality of life change, but it saves so much time. Yes, yes. And I'm so happy that when I get to work on these games like this, I can also help them shine a little bit more within within the developer's original intentions or the way they would handle things now. For sure. So, as, so essentially, you know, not only bring them to a new platform, but make them still be able to hold their own... Uh, a bit more in the modern world and get rid of some of that. I, I, I guess the best term for it is retro jank. Uh, I suppose. Yes. Like I think that these titles still had amazing charm without the updates and everything. But if you want to reach gamers, you need to remember that stuff like widescreen and HD, they're just important now. Mm hmm. That like they, they aren't so much things that are options anymore as they're just the standard. Exactly. And as a result, you have to remember that these games will be held to that standard and not the standard of their time. So what would you say is that the is the oldest game you've had to, to work on ports on? Ease one and two, I guess not counting in that, because I guess technically what the first versions of those games ever were was what, that 80, 85, 86, something like that? Yeah, pretty darn old. But um, when it comes to that, we at Exceed worked on these Y titles, and originally I was slated to work on Y1, um, but that game was coded in, in like DirectX 4 or 5, and it's it was so old that I ended up going, okay, I will work on the others Y, you find somebody to work on this one, we'll get them both out. <laughs> <laughs> it was just that painful to work on <laughs> yes it looked like it was going to take me a lot of time and a lot of effort and i figured that you know we'd be able to get more done if i just passed on a title for once <laughs> it's fair is that the is that the only title you've you've had to pass on or i'm guessing um, there have been others uh, as well since i was originally going to work on the piece version of E7, but I had to pass on that for time because I had too many projects already. That's completely fair. Yeah. 
And then I'm not sure if this is all right to ask, but what I find interesting is Xseed was in charge of uh, the East series for so long because you know I know pretty much the with the everything past that initial Konami Oath and Fogana localization, which I know is very controversial. Xseed handled pretty much everything, uh, ranging from I guess Fogana. All the way up to E7, and then NIS uh, did uh, eight. Do what? Was there any reason for why there is that shift in localization, uh, company? Um, I can't really talk about that, but I will say that all of us at Exceed at the time were really devastated by not getting E8. Many of us really love E8 and were heavily emotionally invested in what happened. Absolutely. So moving on, um, how many how many projects were when you took on uh, Freedom Planet? You said there was already some overlap going on between uh, Rock and Android and between Xseed. So at, at that time, how many different projects were you probably working on at once? Hmm. When I first joined Xseed, and I was working on Oath and Fogana and Origin. That would be the perhaps worst point because I think I was working on about three or four projects for Rock and Android at the same time, as well, well as two projects with Xseed. And as time went along, the projects for Rock and Android kind of reduced until I finally parted ways with them. So uh, with Freedom Planet, not only were you doing programming work, but uh, apparently you were also doing their PR as well. So what was that kind of like? It was an interesting experience. Um, you see, I had never quite done anything like that before, but I had noticed that it was one of the places where the Freedom Planet team was really lacking. So I figured that I would try cutting my teeth on it. And I had to reach out to a lot of like influencers, I guess they're called now. For example, mm -hmm. um, one of the first influencers I ever reached out to was a place called Gigaboots because they had done videos for Rock and Android games and I felt they would do a good job. Um, but over time, I ended up having to talk to quite a lot of gaming press and I never expected how tricky that could be. Would you say, like, I, I guess, all right, how, how do I say this without about naming in anyone in the press and just in gaming press? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, all right. I, it's like, all right, James, you gotta navigate this well. Uh, I know a lot of people in in the gaming press tend to are known to kind of twist things for the sake of getting, you know, a, a headline that'll get a lot of clicks or videos that that will get a lot of views. Sure. Was that a a constant concern? Uh, I think that Stephen was pretty worried about game builds and such falling into the wrong hands like previews of the game and that was probably part of his concern um we were fortunate enough not to have to deal with that during freedom planet um so we were lucky uh i guess i guess with that in mind uh, what, were, what were some of the uh i guess uh moving to a more positive side of press what were some of the the favorite uh, your favorite outlets and influencers that you actually got to work with during that time, though? Aside from Gigaboots, we managed to talk to quite a lot of Let's Players. 
um, one of the favorite groups of people that I, I managed to talk with and work with on previews of the game was this streaming group called the Sanctuary Crew, which um, one of the main East fansite um, hosts, Kirsten Miller, is actually a member of that crew. So, well, she was. So um, it was really interesting how there was even overlap there, and I really liked that. Well, absolutely. I, again, everything's interconnected, right? <laughs> exactly. It's just a web. It's just a web. So I guess, you know, m moving on slightly, what, what are some of uh, your, your own games that you, you've played a lot of? Like not, you know, limited to, to the games you've worked on, but what are you, some of your own personal favorite games? I am a big fan of the Landgrisser series, which was mostly only released in Japan, although recently Langris or Mobile has launched in the West and been pretty well received. Um, I'm also a big fan of Suikoden, nice. and <laughs> I like game arts titles like Grandia and Lunar. No, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Grandia is fantastic. I love it. And then... The also, Sylphied. No one really talks about Sylphied a lot, but Sylphied was a, a very good little shooter that they did. Yeah, I actually did play that once. I didn't get a lot of time with it, but I enjoyed the time I got with it. And I guess when, when it came to your early days, you know, going, I guess, somewhat full circle back to when you first started, what, what were the games that truly, that you, you know, that you first saw... Was there any game that really made you say, yes, you know, I want to go and I want to help bring these games to uh, a new audience? Uh, the Square Enix title Live Alive in the SNES era is one of the first things that made me think, hey, I definitely want to work in fan translation back then. Nice. That is, That is one of the overlooked gems of Square Enix back then because we never got it. And it is a game where there are several chapters, several different protagonists, and each of them have very different stories that have interconnecting themes, like, um, you know, like just overarching stuff. Mm -hmm. I've heard great things about it before. Yes, it is a wonderful title, and it just really reached me overall. It also has a great battle system that nothing has really been like it since. It's very unique. Uh, and I guess for for those, uh, I I guess for for those at home, do you want to kind of give just a little overview of that? Well, the battle system of Live Alive has basically a grid of cells that every character moves around on and enemies might be small they might take up just one cell or they might be enormous three by three four by four bosses and your various abilities will target in an area of effect and this area of effect might not just be a straight line or a circle or anything like that it might be something completely different like a checkerboard pattern and stuff like what direction the enemy is facing, it all matters. And it just feels like a very unique strategic battle system for a turn-based game. Oh, absolutely. And I guess I guess it's interesting as well because you mentioned the likes of uh, Lunar and whatnot. 
Uh, did you originally play those on PS1, I'm guessing? Or was it the Sega CD versions? Or I discovered them on PS1. Nice. PS1. Uh, would you agree in saying probably one of the golden ages of old school RPGs? Definitely. Definitely. I feel like the SNES era was the most influential to me. But I would say PS1 was a close second. No, absolutely. Like, as I said, I... I... They, they both both of those generations made so many just classic classic RPGs. Definitely. Like uh, I I know for for East for example, there's just goodness what, what was it? There was I guess the vast majority of them. If we're talking like TurboGrafx CD, and then three, four, and five on SNES, and actually like what? Was there like three different versions of East 4 that were all different games of the same plot? Yeah. Uh, essentially, the thing that happened there is Falcom outsourced that game, and it seems that they gave like concepts and character designs and music to these different companies, um, such as Hudson and Tonkin House. And each of them ended up coming up with a different overall story for the game. And as a result, every version has some connecting themes that are similar but they are all completely different and then to make matters more complicated when Falcom finally made their own version with memories of Salsetta they took an entirely different path from all of them and I guess it's kind of the weird thing about East because I I don't think there's ever been like an East you know Hyrule Historia book or whatnot or if there has I'm sure it was Japanese exclusive so there's not really any set timeline that says this one's the, the canon one or whatnot. Yes, part of the beauty of East, though, is that, you know, in lore, every one of the titles is essentially a book that was written by Adol um, Kristen, you know, at all, yeah. sorry. Hey, uh, he was, um, he was Adol in the TurboGrafx day. He's still Adol to me. <laughs> yeah, like, there's there's an easy reason that somebody can slip on that. Um but, you know, Adol Kristen is an adventurer who wrote books about all of his journeys, and the games are considered to be one interpretation of each book. And, you know, I think that's really kind of, that's really just a really beautiful way, you know, to kind of view a series, because I guess it also allows things where it's like, you know, I know most of the games aren't even, you know, chronological at this point. Like, I know... Um, Far from it. Yeah. But, you know, so, but I guess it really is like, you know, because they're books, it's like you're, you're playing through them, but you're really getting a different interpretation every time. Yes. So I guess another really awesome uh, Falcom game that, that you worked on was actually a Xanadu. Ah, yes. Xanadu next to, yeah. How, how exactly what, what was working on that title like? Xanadu next was, um... It was an interesting experience. It's a far more westernized looking title than other Falcom games for the most part. Like it looks high fantasy. Like you could place Xanadu next next to a D&D &D campaign and nobody would really notice that it's out of place. And when working on it, um, there were a lot of technical challenges. I can't always talk about the exact details, but during... Mm -hmm. um, during our testing, a lot of the bugs ended up being really strange ones. Like, um, during text display, one letter would be incorrect. That is an actual bug that happened, and we had no idea why. And it was 
an interesting experience to work on that game. One of the most interesting challenges, though, is that the game um, is mostly mouse-based, and the um, mm-hmm. keyboard and gamepad support is actually just emulating a mouse for the most part. And that made a lot of things very curious to work on, especially when converting the game to widescreen. Absolutely. But even in Xan... You know, it's so great that that got a poor, especially since I think before... You know, before Xseed really took on Xandu, I think... Uh, I think most people, if they had experienced the series, it was probably through... Fa- was it Fazandu? Faxandu uh, on the NES? Yeah, Fazandu. Is that is that the pronunciations that one? I think so, but I'm not confident either. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like I you honestly you're one of two people I've met who've actually know, like actually know what I'm talking about when I mention that game. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those for those wondering, the best way I can say is, uh, a more RPG esque Zelda two, yeah. That sounds pretty accurate, yeah. <laughs> what, of all the games you've worked on, which one would you say you have uh, the most memories with, either from actually playing or even just working on it? Trails in the Sky the Third. That game, even we were not sure that we would ever get there. And many of the people in Exceed at the time were big fans of Trails in the Sky. And as you know probably these games were enormous and it was hard for any of them to get translations like the fact they came out at all is kind of a miracle but with trails in the sky the third um we had already learned the news about like east eight and everything and we still put our heart and souls into that title me and my co-worker Brittany. um and it ended up being a very personal project for us that we both were constantly working on very closely. Absolutely. I'm guessing uh, of, of the titles you uh, haven't worked on from Xseed, are there any that are there any that you later went on and played and you you were kind of like, oh, I wish I'd worked on that or whatnot? Retro game challenge. On DS. Yes. Oh, that's a. That, I, I hate to use a term. That's a hidden gem. <laughs> it definitely is. And as people may know, it is based on the Japanese TV series Game Center CX. And I love that series. And uh, I guess, do, do you want to give kind of a small overview of what Retro Game Challenge is uh, in itself? For I said, uh, game, game Center is so good. It's so good. Yeah. But <laughs> essentially, do you want to give a small overview? Essentially, that particular title um you are a kid who has been tasked with playing various retro games that never actually existed but were created for the sake of the game and you are given various tasks that you have to perform during each game which will eventually culminate in clearing them and these games range from old arcade style games to like you know somewhat later generation games and they are all just very charming titles no absolutely like if if, if anyone 
oh gosh, I know I'm going to piss people off uh, who, who are listening or whatnot, because you're going to be like, oh, you know, those YouTubers driving up the price on video games. <laughs> but seriously, if anyone, like, if anyone watching or listening right now has not played Retro Game Challenge, really any of the games we've talked about today, you know, East, Xanadu, Corpse Party, like, they're all just great games freedom planet and i'm not just saying that because i did a documentary <laughs> on freedom planet like these are all just great titles that everyone should play i absolutely agree and i feel blessed to have worked on all these games so here's one that i noticed that you did for uh, that that you did what now what i think was a kind of a really interesting steam tile that i, I also doesn't get uh, a ton of talk about it the tyranno builder visual novel studio yes um i didn't do a lot of direct work on this title but as some people may or may not know i have taken side jobs with new media before um a company run by sion king um and tyranno builder it's a very interesting little program it is you know independently made japanese software uh and even to this day, when a new build comes out, I'm the one who gets it put up on Steam. If anybody is interested in making a visual novel, I would definitely recommend this software. Because while you could use something like RenP, um, I think that Tyranno Builder has its own creative flair and it has a what you see is what you get kind of appeal. And what's and it's also, a, a, you know, quite intuitive as well. Uh, you know, I think I, th I heard someone once describe it as the RPG maker of visual novels. Essentially, like one of the descriptions that is given for Tyranno Builder is that it has a simple drag and drop interface. You can seriously just drag and drop scenes and characters and stuff onto the creator and get started. And I think that is a unique kind of appeal that even RPG Maker doesn't quite have. Absolutely. Especially since, you know, our RPG Maker at its core, though you can drag and drop, you know, you can still go in and you can... Oh, goodness, I, I've been out of RPG Maker since XP, but, you know, I remember, you know, it was big into like going and coding an RGSS. Are they still using RGSS? I know there was an RGS, but that's besides the point, you know? They use JavaScript <laughs> Tyranno now. Builder is very, it's very user-friendly. Yeah. Um, it's funny you should talk about RPG Maker. I feel like that series has been a big influence on me in life because I was using RPG Maker 2 on the SNES, like just to mess around for a long time. And I still make RPG Maker games too on the side. Uh, how curiosity, uh, are you using uh, MV? Is that the new one, MV? I still use XP. I guess I'm kind of an RPG Maker hipster. No, I feel like, I don't know, like XP was great and I just could not make the jump to VX. Yeah, like it's that kind of problem for me. Um, the newer creators are absolutely fantastic. They are. But for me, it just felt more comfortable. I'd been using it for so many years. I was used to the interface, the battle system, all of that. So instead, what I did was make sure that my games worked on a newer version of the engine, sort of, but were still made in XP. So players can do stuff like select their resolution and such, but it's just RPG Maker XP. But, you know, I, I, I think there's something to really be said about tools, you know, like RPG Maker, Tyranno Builder, or even, uh, I guess, 
somewhat more complex things like, uh, you know, Game Maker or whatnot and how, you know, just how many people would not, you know, gotten any interest in game development had it not been for software like this. Yes, you know, um, I believe that Steven Dodaro actually got his start on, like, click and play. And yes. Freedom Planet is basically made in the modern version of that click team fusion. Yeah, which is, you know, it's really crazy to think about as well, because, you know, even though it's, you know, simple software or whatnot, like multimedia fusion can be remarkably robust. You know, you can do remarkably robust things, all things considered, like more like Freedom Planet. <laughs> yes, Freedom Planet is a great example of a game that was made in a game making software rather than being created from scratch with code. And, uh... Though, I for the second one he's he's using a different engine for the second one, isn't he? Or he is actually using Unity for Freedom Planet Two. Yeah, sorry that like Ty Tyranno Builder is good, and I I wanted to just mention that because that's one I'm glad to see that you had yes <laughs> uh, some involvement with, and also it is sixteen dollars Canadian on Steam right now. I do not know what that is in American money. I'm sure that's with the exchange rate right now, that's probably about five bucks. I don't know. <laughs> it's 15 bucks. Yeah. So I guess before we end off, because we've been going for almost an hour now, uh, are there any projects that you have coming up in the near future? Oh, I definitely have some interesting projects. I can't tell you what they are, but I'm going to be doing more ports from PSP and other systems like that to PC. Very nice. Very nice. And then uh, where can people find you online? Of course, that's Sarlene uh, at Xseed. I know you're on Twitter, of course, but do you want to just plug your handle on where people can find you? Well, on Twitter, I am Sarah J. Lean. Um, my website is sarah.wingdreams.net. Um, and I also have a Twitch, which is a little different. It's twitch.tv slash s-a-r-a-l-e-n-e -E. you see sarah lene which is based on a character name i had back in the everquest days and i use it as an online handle sometimes i mean that's that's how most online handles start right <laughs> yes you, you, you know you eat, like they come from the most unexpected places but they stick right yeah yeah like i just took my name and mixed it up a little into a single name and I had a new handle. I mean, ma makes sense. I mean, uh, I have a I have a buddy who uh, at one point when we were first coming up with online names, we just wrote um, we literally came up with cool words, literally uh, cut them out on paper and threw them into a hat <laughs> because we <laughs> thought that was it, it was very weird. It was, but that was like 2011. We don't use any of those names anymore. But that's besides the point. <laughs> you want to share some of them? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> they they, they were cring, you know cringy xbox live trash oh <laughs> uh, yes okay so it's xx goku saiyan xx got it yeah yeah you know a, a little less pg but <laughs> <laughs> because you know of course you you have like teenagers or what preteens and teenagers like you know i gotta really i gotta really have have something edgy on there for when I'm playing Uno on Xbox Live. Oh, oh my god. 
Yeah, it's, uh. it's like this name will totally make me seem older and cooler. Yeah, and then and then of course you know one of you gets a mic and people are like, "What the hell do these kids think they're doing?" Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I got a little bit of that back in the day when I was playing Half Life One. Oh my gosh, um, I I guess oh that that's a question I should have asked. You know what what were some of the, what were some of the defining PC games for you? Retro PC games. Huh, that is. Definitely a very interesting question. Um, I spent so much of my life on PC that I could pretty much name a million different things if I wanted to, but um, I would have to say Ultima Online. Yeah. So I'm just, I just really love Richard Garriott, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like on PC, I was playing a lot of simulator games, so like, you know, Maxis, that kind of thing. Like, um, I I really loved Sim Tower. Another really great one. And an overlooked game that I played a lot on PC that I don't think many people will know is Ultimate Domain, also known as Genesia, which there's a modern version on PC called something like Genesia Legacy. What, what, what was that one kind of like? Well, it was a sim game, but it had a tile-based interface. Um, you know, all, everything's on a grid. And you had mm. just a few villagers to start with, with little huts. And you would have to find these gems that are scattered throughout the world, Genesia. And you would have to research things like new vehicles and weaponry and metallurgy and you know whatever along the way and it had full motion videos for scenes like you would go into the laboratory to research and the camera would pan into it and everything and back then that seemed amazing because this is a dos title we're talking about oh absolutely and you know that that's something i'm glad i'm seeing more interest in again as well i think partially due to youtube channels like lgr and whatnot just I'm glad to be seeing, you know, more people talking about DOS games and what again. Yes, absolutely. And GOG has not hurt. No, GOG has not hurt at all. Like, it's such a great resource that, you know, I'm glad we have nowadays. Yeah. And obviously, for those of you who are listening, you can pick up the games I worked on on GOG for the most part, too. Yes. Uh, I guess, are, are there any that in particular that you'd like to plug before we end off? And also any final comments? Well... When it comes to plugging games in particular, I would really like to suggest my newest release, Corpse Party Sweet Sachiko's Hysteric Birthday Bash, because even though this looks like a massively fan service game, and to an extent it is, it is hilarious. <laughs> it is absolutely hilarious, and you will not stop laughing if you play it. Um, as for comments, I just thank you so much for having me, and it's been a pleasure to be here. It's been awesome having you on here. Everyone, Sarlene, uh, Xseed, Freedom Plant, Plant, New Games, and of course... Um, Rockin' Android. Rockin' Android, yes. Sorry, I was about to sneeze, but... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. But this oh, has man. been really awesome. Thank you so much for coming on here. This has been a ton of fun. It's been awesome having you on here. Thank you so much.
And of course, if you want to hear more podcasts like this, uh, more regularly now, especially now that summer is here, which means that yes, there are going to be more podcasts more regularly. Then why not subscribe to stuff we say on YouTube, or of course, listen to us anywhere where the podcast is available. Of course, if you want a full list and that will be in the description on YouTube or on the website, once I actually do finally build uh, the big stuff we play website. And of course, if you want to see me in person, see my ugly mug either talking about video games or doing documentaries on video games, then why not subscribe to Stuff We Play on YouTube? So with that, this was the Stuff We Say podcast. Thank you very much for watching. Stay classy, and I'll see you next time.